Thank you for listening. You're listening to Medicine Remix. What's really good, Remixed Hood? It's your boy, Reesh. It's your podcast, Medicine Remixed. And today's episode is another installment of our documentary interview series, where we talk to doctors from various specialties in medicine that vibe with the remix culture that we're trying to create here on our show, Medicine Remix. You know, there's been so much hype around diets like the keto diet, the paleo diet, the Atkins diet, and so many other variations of these diets over the past few years that we had to reach out to someone who actually knows what the fuck they're talking about regarding these diets and the nutritional science behind them. So our guest today is Dr. Shivam Joshi, who is a board-certified physician with an interest in plant-based health and evolutionary diets. He is currently a faculty member at the New York University School of Medicine. Shivam went to med school at the University of Miami, where he also completed his internal medicine residency. Then he completed a nephrology fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. Obviously a super smart and qualified dude, he's published over two dozen scientific articles on various topics in medicine, and his writing largely about diet and nutrition has appeared on sites like the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, Forks Over Knives, and Kevin MD. He's currently writing a book on the adverse health effects of a carnivorous diet. So this episode is a fascinating deep dive into the evolution of the human diet, debunking myths about the most famous fad diets of our time, and tactical tips about how to live the longest, healthiest life you possibly can. So without further ado-do, enjoy this phenomenal documentary interview with Dr. Shivam Joshi on the one and only Medicine Remix. Documentary. Documentary. Who's the doc that he told you to go see? Shivam. Oh, hey, Sarish. Hey, up? man. I'm ready to do this. Awesome, awesome. So, first of all, thank you uh, so much for doing this. I know you're a super busy guy. Not to be corny or cliche, but I honestly think like doctors are as close to superheroes as we get. So, I guess with that analogy, I always ask the doctors that I interview about their origin story. So, what does that like? first comic book of Shivam Joshi, a.k.a. Nephrology Man, kind of look like. That's uh, why you think of us physicians, yourself included, as, as superheroes. Sometimes uh, we don't feel that way. But uh, my origin story, the planet that I came from, my defining moments actually aren't all that special. I came from Florida. I grew up in Central Florida, a small town called Sebring. And, uh, you know, my, my origin was, uh, was, I think, fairly fairly normal you know I, I think I uh, you know growing up during that time I was very interested in dinosaurs I think a lot of kids are but the time Jurassic Park was peaking the books were out uh, the book was out and then the movie came out so for a long time I really wanted to be a paleontologist and uh, a lot of people have similar stories like uh, when Top Gun came out a lot of people wanted to be fighter pilots I feel the need, the need for speed. Yeah, when Apollo 13 uh, came out, uh, people want to be astronauts. Houston, we have a problem. Which is kind of a uh, kind of interesting. But uh, anyways, I uh, grew up there in Central Florida, which is a nice place to grow up, and uh, went to undergrad at Duke, in North Carolina. Then I went to med school at the University of Miami and did my residency there and then did fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania in nephrology. So yeah, it's not a crazy uh, origin story. I don't think I knew then what I would be doing now. Right. So I guess take me through that process of how you went from wanting to be a paleontologist to then ultimately going into medicine. I guess one of the things that I find fascinating, especially talking to children of immigrants who became doctors and then finding out what their ecosystem was like growing up as far as any pressure they may or may not have had to go into medicine. So what was that like for you growing up in Central Florida and, you know, kind of what your family was like? Yeah. Uh, I think my family was fairly similar to a lot of other uh, Asian American families. My parents uh, were from India. They migrated here. And uh, so they they, they only wanted the best from from their children. And uh, I feel like growing up, they gave me only, they gave me options. But I feel like in that option spectrum, it was like doctor or another type of doctor. So I don't think it fully included. 
included the full range of options. But as I told you, I, I uh, was very interested in dinosaurs and history and, you know, the mystery of what happened to them and what were these creatures and how big they were and how they roamed the earth and things like that. And uh, so actually when I got to Duke, I tried to connect with a paleontologist. I think she was the only true paleontologist, which then the Department of Biology. The rest of the people were uh, on the spectrum, anthropologists or archaeologists, and not truly paleontologists. And uh, for a while, she was not there. Finally, when I met up with her, uh, it was kind of interesting. I uh, remember it, it, her office was long and it was dimly lit. And I opened the door. It was like lined with books and like other you know, interesting. Uh, uh, artifacts and, and knickknacks that uh, one might have in an office, especially if you're a paleontologist. And then um, she fairly curtly asked me, what did I want? What do you want? And I told her I wanted to be a, a paleontologist and, uh, and if uh, she had any advice, as, as any person in college might do to someone who is in their uh, prospective field, just ask soliciting advice. And then uh, she responded, well, don't do it. <laughs> Because <laughs> you'll spend the rest of your life looking for bones in a desert and you'll never find them. <laughs> and then she and she she never looked up. She was writing something or doing something on her desk. And then uh, she was like, anything else? And then uh, I was like, uh, nope. <laughs> and then I, I turned around and left. Um, and so, so that, 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 that quickly came to an end, uh, which I perhaps had suspected uh, that to become a paleontologist to get your PhD and then to be a paleontologist of significance in your community, you kind of have to depend a little bit on luck, but it kind of goes with a lot of the scientific specialties. It's a combination of both luck and, and knowledge, but, uh, you know, was I destined to be a paleontologist and never became one and secretly, you know, between seeing patients and my, you know, reading Jurassic Park, The Lost World? No, I mean, I think, you know, I probably would have realized that maybe this was a great uh, fascination as a child and, and as an adult, uh, there might be other things for, for me to do. So in college, I certainly was pre-med. I think uh, college is supposed to be a period of exploration. And for a lot of people who go into it uh, with the mindset of being a doctor, uh, one, you kind of lose out on exploration, even though I perhaps did a little bit, you know, by speaking with that paleontologist and doing other things. But uh, you don't get the, the chance to, uh, you know, try out different courses and different things. Uh, some of your classes are pre-med focused. You're taking Cal, you're taking biology, you're taking chemistry. And uh, so you miss out on the classes and perhaps the, the exploration behind that that uh, allows maybe to consider other things. Because there are a lot of jobs out there. And I think perhaps for people of migrant parents, we think of, you know, the jobs out there as being fairly limited or finite. You know, the only jobs out there are, are you going to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer? And that's not true. There's a lot of careers and pathways out there that are not defined and they aren't people tabling, you know, sign up with us or get a job with us. There are these circuitous paths that people have to explore, which is kind of, uh, which is kind of interesting. But I was a pre-med, so I did a lot of uh, my courses by the second or third year of college. I was pretty much done with all those, and I kind of had the reverse experience where by my fourth year, I was like, okay, let me start exploring now. But a lot of people who were seniors in college were, uh, let me take the easiest classes. And here I was trying to find some of the more interesting classes. But needless to say, uh, I applied for medical school, and one of the places I got into was the University of Miami, and I had never been to Miami before and I was wondering what was Miami like. I had been to Tampa which, and I got into University of South Florida so I kind of knew what Tampa was like and uh, University of Florida was in Gainesville which is another place I got into and um, I had heard of Gainesville was a small town so I was, I was like uh, Miami seems like a, a place to go. So I typed in what is Miami like or something like that into Google and I found Will Smith's Welcome to Miami song. <laughs> I found the music video for that. So I played that music video and I was just totally blown away. I was like, is this what Miami is like? Like everyone drives a fancy car and then days are like bright and sunny and it's water so clear you can see to the bottom. Like I, I was like, is this is this how it is? I mean like even if Will Smith is exaggerating again, Miami's only a one tenth like this. This place has to be amazing. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any songs about Gainesville. Uh, <laughs> at least not any that would uh, entice you to go there. So yeah, I think uh, you made a good decision. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, yeah, there's no songs about Gainesville or Tampa. And I was like, you know, this 
this is a sign. This has to be a sign. So I finished watching the video and I wrote back to University of Miami by email. I was like, I'm coming to you. <laughs> well, I, will, like, I should have put in Will Smith convinced me. <laughs> Um, and uh, it, it was a great experience, actually. Uh, Miami, I mean, the, the video does certainly does hype it up, but there's a lot of aspects of Miami that are that are very nice and worth visiting or, or experiencing, at least for a few days. My med school experience involved me rotating through the Keys, which was just a, a wonderful experience, uh, seeing both rural medicine and also living in the Keys, which not, not everyone gets to do. Mm -hmm. So in that process, I started out initially wanting to be a transplant surgeon. I I thought what would be the coolest thing out there and uh, I was thinking about things and then I started learning about artificial kidneys wow. all this work being done at UCSF and uh, ultimately that project I ended up uh, meeting the guy and becoming friends with him so at that time I connected with transplant surgeons at the University of Miami University of Miami has a large transplant center uh, they do kidneys, they do pancreases, they do intestinal transplants, heart, lungs. Uh, it's, a, it's a very large enterprise and if you're in that area and need a transplant, uh, Miami is certainly the place to go. And so I was collaborating with a transplant surgeon named Dr. Gaetano Chancho. Because as a med student, it's kind of a similar thing where you're trying to figure out what you want to do. Um, and you're trying to reach out and collaborate with a particular physician or a specialty. And um, you don't get that same like paleontologist, like you're being in the desert and uh, scrounging around for bones, but it's just that it's more subtle. You send these emails and you don't get a response or you're trying to like shadow someone and then they're busy or your schedule doesn't line up. So it's difficult, but uh, from the get-go, this particular surgeon was very supportive and uh, friendly and uh, believed in the capacity of medical students to uh, contribute to something or be able to do something. Whereas I feel like a lot of physicians think, oh, medical student, uh, this guy doesn't know anything, which right. is perhaps true. But then uh, these people eventually blossom into residents and fellows and then physicians on their own. And the process may seem slow, but it happens uh, quicker than one might expect. So uh, he mentored me on a few projects and some of them are published and uh, during this course I quickly uh, realized that uh, the lifestyle of a transplant surgeon is very arduous. Uh, the first time I met him was on a Thursday morning. He was going to uh, urology grand rounds because he was uh, double trained as both a urologist and general surgeon which is fairly unique in terms of a transplant surgeon and then uh, I met him at this corner. It's like another moment in uh, my experience where I remember it's at the corner when you're kind of leaving the medical campus and going towards the, uh, the medical gym or the clinical research there's that intersection there and I asked him how the lifestyle was like and he said well, let me put it to you this way it's a Thursday today and I've been here since Monday and I was like oh uh, this is this is fairly intense I, I don't know if I could live at the hospital literally to do these transplants and through that uh, I thought uh, maybe I would uh, consider nephrology or urology a lot of these specialties have overlapped and ultimately I liked uh, medicines you get to think about these things and apply uh, what you know and it's a lot of knowledge which uh, not the other fields don't have it's uh, just by the fact that we don't do procedures or, or surgeries that we kind of dependent on knowing things and uh, meticulously reviewing cases and, and things like that uh, it's kind of uh, the field which I appreciated so uh, I ended up pursuing a path that I thought would lead me to transplant nephrology so uh, in this path I did um, I completed uh, medical school and then I went to Baylor for year to do a research project I thought that once you start this uh, training after medical school is kind of like you're in this uh, process where each stage is followed by the next stage and there's no really stopping to do uh, research or taking time off uh, to explore other things uh, unless you have a residency or fellowship within a built-in research time which can be hard to find and you might end up doing a research project that someone else might want you to do or things like that so I, I ended up taking this year in Baylor to do research on uh, artificial kidneys, a, a guy who I ended up working under, was mentored by another big guy in the field who pursued making artificial kidneys through a different way, through tissue engineering them, which is uh, kind of like taking the cells of a particular organ and growing them on a scaffold and uh, experimenting or trying to, to get them right in the right configuration and proportions that, that they're a functional organ. Wow. Uh, so and then this process, which was illuminating, I, I realized that, that that field also had its own challenges and this was a kind of a separate way of 
building a kidney from the the first guy at UCSF that I was mentioning. He was doing it through a combination of nanotechnology and like a cell reactor sort. Uh, so it was, I felt that it was like um, kind of like a competition between like Edison and Westinghouse, uh, who would be the first to make the artificial kidney. And, and back then, I thought, oh, we would have an artificial kidney uh, within the next ten years or, or so, or that's what people said. And I feel like it's not quite ten years later, but uh, six years later, I feel like people are still saying, oh, we'll have one another ten years or so. But during that time, I realized that uh, there's a lot of obstacles to making a kidney, and I thought. Why are we having so much kidney failure in the first place? And uh, the field of transplant nephrology revolves around, as one might expect, transplanting kidneys into people who have had kidney failure. And the number one, number two cause of kidney failure is uh, diabetes and hypertension. And at the time, I thought, oh, it's so unfortunate that these people develop diabetes and hypertension and leads to kidney failure, and then they need a transplant. And then I thought, it's unfortunate that a lot of them can't get a, a transplant because there's just not enough kidneys to go around either you have to know someone uh, who's willing to donate a kidney we jokingly say don't be mean to your friends and family because you might end up needing a, a, a kidney from them but unfortunately a lot of people just don't know someone or the match is inappropriate or their friends and family might have uh, preclusions to donating kidney so then a lot of people depend on getting these kidneys off of a, a wait list the deceased donor waiting list which is people who unfortunately die in a car accident for example or die in the hospital and uh, from other causes and uh, are alive or recently passed so that their kidneys can be harvested or obtained and then those organs can be including the kidney can be given to people who might need them and um Again, uh, not, not so many people can get it, so that there's this uh, mismatch for these people to go out to dialysis, which is a, a life-saving treatment, but also a treatment that takes years off of your life in return, which is unfortunate. The process itself doesn't say, oh, because I'm keeping you alive, I'm going to take these years off. It's just that the process is suboptimal for keeping someone alive, which is unfortunate. So at any rate, uh, I started thinking about this, and I would say probably this was the beginning of when I was uh, starting to perhaps realize that prevention is more important than treatment. Like uh, Ben Franklin said, an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. Talk to him. And um, that's when I realized that uh, we should be working simultaneously on trying to reduce diabetes and hypertension in the first place, in parallel with doing these efforts to make an artificial kidney. Just because what if our science doesn't work out? People have been trying to find, quote unquote, the cure to cancer, to a variety of cancers since the 1970s, but some cancers, unfortunately, don't have a cure, quote unquote, certainly chemotherapy is a lot better. But what if we aren't so lucky, or you know, this happens to be one of those things that we can't solve? And uh, so I thought, you know, we should be working on prevention too. So I started reading some books and looking into things. Someone had given me a China study, so I read that. And then I thought the things in the China study, the claims that were being made were just so outrageous. But what was curious about the China study is that each claim has a citation or a group of citations and references. So you can go look them up and check them out yourself, which I thought was uh, unique and different from other health books and that they just put these claims out there and then don't really have references or citations to them. So I started looking at these citations and references and checking them and then they had their own group of citations and then you know I cross-checked them and then in the end a lot of uh, almost all of them panned out I don't think there was any one of them that wasn't uh, unsubstantiated so any anyways I started residency and I didn't have as much time to devote to these things residency is, is uh, pretty busy and at the same time I, uh, I started to make a blog and blog about various aspects of medicine and then uh, when I did have a time off I would read a book here and there you know Michael Pollan or Mary Nestle and then uh, come across a book maybe by Ocean Robbins or John Robbins and then a couple other books on plant-based eating and things like that and then during this time my mentality was slowly changing I was quickly realizing that uh, what we eat is a big factor in our health you literally are what you eat so I was starting to associate that diabetes and hypertension were preventable and also preventable with diet and uh, and then I was realizing why are so many people still developing these diseases having these diseases go unchecked despite uh, us treating them or perhaps not treating them if uh, 
if these patients aren't getting treatment for whatever reason, and then developing kidney disease, which is also a spectrum. It, uh, you start at stage one and progress to stage five. So why are these people getting to the last stage in this disease process? And then we're throwing uh, a lot of time and effort to them to uh, reverse this disease process when we're at the last stage of it. And I said, if we're going to be throwing all this time and effort, maybe we should be targeting at a much earlier stage so we can prevent all these people from getting kidney disease and end-stage renal disease and needing dialysis or a transplant. Not that these people don't deserve these treatments, is that over the long term, it's uh, investing in prevention will certainly have bigger dividends for society and just population health than uh, reactively treating end-stage renal disease. And it was in this process, I, I started to think about what can we do. And so uh, I finished uh, residency and then I started fellowship in nephrology at Penn. And uh, these thoughts just continued and I realized um, that over a lifetime of doing this, that uh, nephrologists generally see people in the later stages of kidney disease and maybe at a stage where it's too late to intervene, perhaps too late to intervene in the in the treatment of kidney disease as uh, we see people generally in the later stages where people are very close to dialysis. And is it uh, possible to reverse a disease process and is it worth reversing a disease process for a modest amount of uh, kidney function? So in this process, after wrapping up fellowship, I started looking for jobs that allowed me to at least have some time in general internal medicine because I felt that over a lifetime I might be able to catch these people at an earlier stage and prevent them from becoming dialysis dependent or needing a transplant. So the current job that I do now here at NYU, which I'm uh, very fortunate to have, involves me doing all of my time currently in general internal medicine with some time in what we call plant-based medicine or lifestyle medicine, which involves uh, focusing on these causes of chronic diseases and reversing them at a very early stage so they don't progress to their sequelae. And possibly in time, I may have a little bit of uh, nephrology time to build in there. So that's kind of where I am now. And a lot of what I do both in my job and then outside of my job is uh, advocacy and uh, education and helping people understand that food is linked to disease and they can prevent their disease processes by eating healthy. And it's been, it's been very fulfilling. I think that's kind of the original charter, if you can say that for physicians, is to help people be healthier. And there's a lot of reward in doing that. And I think in modern medicine, we, so much of what we do is just reactive. You have high blood pressure, we give you medication to treat it. But I don't know how often people are feeling satisfied that, oh, my blood pressure on you know, four medications is less than 130 over 90. But if you have someone that is you know, completely cured of high blood pressure and has normal blood pressure without medication, that person is very excited and happy not to take these medications and also not to have this diagnosis, which is good. Yeah, that's fascinating, man. I love how your interest in this, you know, evolved really from an intrinsic level and then now in the appointment that you have at NYU. And as you're talking about prevention, you know, one of the quotes that I'm always thinking about around this topic and that Ben Franklin one was a great one. But I also think about William Mayo when he says the aim of medicine is to prevent disease and prolong life. And the ideal of medicine is to eliminate the need of a physician. So it's just so interesting as someone who trained in nephrology that so much of your focus has been to try to prevent people from needing to see you essentially kind of like putting yourself out of business so to speak but that really seems to be the ideal of medicine and it seems like you're definitely upholding that William Mayo philosophy so that's fantastic and briefly spoke the other day and I was mentioning that in general doctors don't really know shit about nutrition and often are no way near authorities on any questions related to nutrition as a result, which is, you know, unfortunate because I feel like so many patients have so many questions about nutrition and, you know, who else do they think to ask these questions than to doctors. But in reality, I think nutrition was a very minimal part of my medical education and so many other people that I know in medicine. So I wanted to ask you what your experience was, if it was any different, or has most of this knowledge about nutrition, has that really been more self-directed in your experience? Yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate that we don't get more training in nutrition and uh, not only nutrition, but exercise, even smoking cessation. People get a little bit of time and we learn about the stages, pre-contemplative, contemplative, like these behavioral changes. 
Um, and then also sleeping. But uh, so much of what we learn is truly traditional medicine. And there's so many reasons for why that is. Just uh, the professors who teach it, the way the curriculum is designed, the, what a, the AAMC mandates. Uh, there's so many reasons for this and uh, the amount of hours that physicians or uh, prospective physicians get at medical school is woefully low, but there's recognition that there needs to be more and schools are doing more to give more hours, more exposure. They're doing things like just by one, including more hours in teaching. Some schools have these like cooking classes where you can learn the principle, but then apply it and translate it into what kinds of foods to cook and make, not only for yourself, but for patients, like this, right? which is very important because when you look at the studies, the practices that physicians espouse, whether it is healthy eating, smoking, exercising, the more practices that physicians espouse and the more of these practices that they are engaged in, in terms of hours, in terms of just being you know, modest exercising versus regimented exercise like 30 minutes every day, that translates into their counseling and how intensely they counsel too, which is kind of interesting. So physicians who tend to be leaner tend to be more engaged with this in their own patients, tend to recognize obesity more and talk with them about these issues, which makes sense. Perhaps a physician certainly wouldn't want to be a hypocrite in counseling if, if they are obese or smoking, but it also may play in subconsciously that maybe we accept these norms and when we see these things in our patients, we see them as, as norms in our patients. But going back to what you're saying, yeah, we, we certainly don't get enough nutrition hours or exposure or training which makes it hard especially not only in medicine uh, medical school but in training afterwards I feel like every disease process has its own requisite factors that cause the, those problems that those particular physicians treat uh, you know for example a heart doctor uh, is treating a lot of people with uh, clogged arteries so to say and you know smoking and bad diets stuff like that and then you have pulmonologists with smoking there, then endocrinologists to see diabetics, you have a nephrologist seeing the hypertensive. Uh, each one of those physicians has a staple disease that they treat, which also has known lifestyle risk factors. And as you progress, you, you may understand that smoking causes lung disease, but are we getting this in-depth uh, exposure to how to, to treat and counsel and things like that? Perhaps the smoking might be the best, maybe the bad example, but maybe for like, endocrinologists and type 2 diabetes are we you know learning the, that same skill set for how to counsel on diet and exercise and uh, all these other things that other people have now learned to do for better or for worse like dietitians and uh, lifestyle coaches and other things and people always say well a physician's time is better spent uh, doing things like practicing medicine which is fair but uh, so much of what we do involves treating these diseases so at the very least we should be able to create a plan or or know what uh, the overall framework of a lifestyle intervention should be so that someone who is type 2 diabetic and on metformin and insulin can work their way towards not being on that. And I, I think that is uh, certainly what's missing. Yeah. And, you know, I guess in all of your deep dives into nutritional science and, you know, what your practice is now on a day to day, how has your diet practices changed, if at all? Yeah. So mine, mine have, have definitely changed. And I feel the more I make a change, the more it translates into the advice that I give to patients, which is not surprising based on what I said earlier about studies showing that. Uh, the practice of the physicians are translated into their professional habits. So on and off, I've been a vegetarian for religious uh, reasons. Growing up in an Indian household, many Indians are, are vegetarian or partially vegetarian, to say the least. And uh, I was an on and off vegetarian uh, for years. The, the interplay between our ethnicity and culture and the intersection of that with the American uh, surroundings and lifestyle is interesting. Because, and that kind of uh, you could see that in whether i would not i was a vegetarian or eating a standard american fare and uh so that flip-flop for a few years and then um once i got to uh residency because i was reading all these books i thought oh, i should also be eating healthier now that uh, i'm a full-fledged physician i can't be eating all this uh fast food and, and uh, unhealthy things so i became a vegetarian and then just because you're a vegetarian still mean you're eating healthy you have to eat uh, be a healthy vegetarian yeah. and i found myself still eating a lot of cheese, cheese. 
and because of the cheese, other unhealthy foods. So then I made a decision to become vegan, which also had some uh, ethical reasons for global warming, animal rights abuses, and then also human rights abuses, which is really interesting. Some of the people who are most marginalized in our population today are migrants who don't know English or have skilled labor and work in these uh, factories and slaughterhouses and suffer devastating injuries and then uh, aren't able to get treatment or have no rights to, to seek workers comp or anything like that. And it's documented in a variety of books and pamphlets and you can find these things online, the stories. So for all these reasons, I decided to become vegan. And uh, even then, even if you're vegan, you still aren't healthy. You have to become a healthy vegan or eat this, what we call whole foods, plant-based diet. So that is kind of where I am now, reducing the unhealthy aspects of a vegan diet and trying to eat uh, truly healthy. Because you can be vegan and eat Oreos and uh, all this other stuff and the fries and uh, you still won't be totally healthy. These things aren't the stereotypical picture of a healthy diet, which includes like fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and things like that. And I guess I shouldn't be, shouldn't say it so convincingly that that's part of stereotypical. What people consider to be healthy is actually in a wide variation and perhaps it's more variable than it has ever been with so many people with their own diets and beliefs and things. I think it's also important to have an evidence base for this that we know that whole grains are beneficial in diabetes because when people eat whole grains, it lowers their risk of diabetes. But there's so many people afraid of carbohydrates. People think that whole grains are the cause of diabetes, which is not the case. And people kind of interchange grains as all grains are bad and they fail to distinguish between whole grains and refined grains. It's the refined grains that get you into trouble and um, so much of the grains that we eat fall into refined grains, white bread, white rice, it's in the flour for bread and it's everywhere and uh, that's what gets us into, into trouble. What's good Medicine Remix podcast fam? I want to ask you some questions. Do you want to share your opinions, uh-huh. give us feedback, yeah. or just let us know what you're thinking? Yeah, yeah. If you answered yes to even one of those questions, send us a voice message. That's right, a voice message. Uh-huh. Voice messages are just an easy way for you to send us audio that might end up in a future episode of Medicine Remix. Yeah! They're the latest feature from Anchor, the platform we've been using to make this podcast since 2016. Here are some things we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Questions you have for us, medical. What is found in allergy medication? Medication that kind of like zaps, you know, the allergy symptoms out of you. Or non-medical. What did Dean Reach think of Kendrick Lamar's album? Do, 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 do. Where's my medicine remix review? What you thought of an episode? That was so incredible and amazing. It blew my mind. What you think of, I don't know, hip-hop? Hip-hop makes you happy when you're working. Well, hip-hop makes the patient happy too. And it has helped me in ways that I can't even explain in my healing process. Making up a theme song for Medicine Remixed. Ooh, baby, Medicine Remixed, bang, bang. In any case, we see all of your messages, and we very well might add them into a future episode. (laughs) Medicine Remixed. And Anchor makes that part super, super easy. Uh So you can send us a voice message right now. That's right, right now from wherever you're listening. Just tap the link in our show notes. We can't wait to hear from y'all. Now back to the one and only Medicine Remixed. One of the topics that you've covered in your writing and some of the articles that I've read have been kind of based on like, you know, evolutionary diets. Uh, I would like to, you know, kind of ask you, especially hearing this background of you wanting to be a paleontologist way back when and then fused with your, you know, interest in plant-based nutrition and just nutrition overall, it kind of makes sense why you might have dived into the history of eating, so to speak. I mean, there's um, a quote from an article you wrote in the Huffington Post last year about eating meat and um, that it's been linked to cancer, high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, stroke, dementia, and so many other things. And nearly every modern lifestyle disease has been associated 
associated with meat. So with so much emerging evidence against meat, it begs the question, were we really evolved to eat meat in the first place? So as a sort of interview alley for those who haven't read your article, were humans evolved to eat meat? Yeah, yeah. So we, we kind of touched on uh, plant-based diets, but yeah, we, we should really talk about this. That's, that is so much of what I do and I hope that your listeners consider it and think about it if they haven't heard about it because it potentially is the single most rewarding and beneficial investment that a person can do because over the course of a lifetime you really can prevent all these diseases and not have to spend your time at a physician's doctor office and getting paying co-pays and filling prescriptions and scheduling appointments taking time off and follow visits and the, it just avoiding these diseases altogether is just so much better for for you, uh -huh. for your health, for your, your life experience. So uh, to answer your question, going back to evolution, and I'm so glad you brought that up and made that connection because that is totally why I am so interested in evolution is because I had this childhood interest in what was going on millions of years ago. If you go back far enough, you'll find the dinosaurs, but after the dinosaurs have long come and gone, what was still going on? And that question only happened within the last five or six years when I was looking at all of this. Around the time when I was reading a China study, I had so much intellectual dissonance because the China study was telling me, oh, you should eat a plant-based diet or eat less meat because that is healthier for you. And that was what science says. But then the paleo diet was saying, which was in vogue then and perhaps now, but has only been superseded by other forms of low carb diets or no carb diets like the keto diet, that you are evolved and have evolved to eat meat. And uh, when I was cross-checking those references, a lot of the references I was cross-checking were actually also on the paleo side, seeing did they match up with what you know the China study was saying. They didn't have exactly the same references, but their logical pathways meet up, or were they different, or was you know did someone make the wrong conclusion? And uh, so, being the interested evolutionary enthusiast. I looked into this a lot and did were we evolved to eat meat? The answer is for me is no and a lot of people uh, see proof of presence of eating meat as proof that we should eat now and one of the arguments that I make in, uh, in the Huffington Post in that article is that if there were candy boxes and pizza boxes just lying around in the evolutionary savanna millions of years ago people would have eaten that just because it was a calorie source. And it doesn't mean that because they ate it then that we should be eating candies and pizzas now because we know that they're unhealthy. But so what I'm saying is that just because they did these practices doesn't mean that we should be doing them too. That they also ate a lot of insects, but you don't see people eating insects. It's hard to prove that they ate insects, but we know that a lot of societies do eat insects and depend on them for sources of protein and calories. Wow. And they probably would have done other things that we don't do now. Could have been uh, cannibalism yeah. or other other things that just because it happened in evolution uh, we shouldn't be doing those things now so what you want to look at is a pattern a pattern that extends over a million years and it takes into account anatomy function and then uh, our evolutionary tree so to speak so when you think about all these things humans evolved from ancestors of primates and at varying points in evolution our evolution diverged and it continued to diverge until the species that we are now but for many millions of years, this evolutionary history was predominantly plant-based. Our progenitors and the progenitors of those progenitors were eating primarily plant-based foods. Some people argue that there's evidence of hunting going back perhaps a million of years. Perhaps so, and perhaps, you know, under certain circumstances, one of our progenitors was eating meat at that time. But did that lineage continue to lead up to who we are now? Did they consistently do it? Were they succeeding in this? When people talk about this, they look over so many things that would have made it difficult for humans and then also our ancestors to successfully acquire meat. If I threw you in a forest uh, without any clothes, uh, without any weapons, without any tools, and I told you, okay, you need to go catch a live animal and make dinner out of it, it would be exceedingly difficult for you to do. And people are saying that this is what our ancestors were doing. And they say, well, they might have had tools, but they certainly didn't have, you know, the tools that we have now. And they didn't have, you know, a rifle or a gun. They didn't have bows and arrows until very late in human evolution. So when you look at people who tend to have a more balanced view on, which this is 
this is a very controversial subject, the, the concept of meat eating and evolution. People get really fired up and they take really strong stances on uh, in social media, particularly Twitter. And people uh, think more with emotion and not evidence or, or logic on this. And um, if you look at people who are fairly unbiased in this, leaders in the field of evolution, successful meat acquisition or hunting and meat consumption did not happen until fairly late in human evolution. Maybe 400,000 years ago when humans, as we know, were already established in here. So it begs the question what people say, oh, meat made us human. But I think there are a lot of other things in human evolution that made us as human. The ability to vocalize, which is very hard to identify and determine, fire perhaps, and then also just uh, thought, critical thinking, group mentality. Uh, a lot of things that perhaps weren't seen in uh, primates and then we see in humans along the course of evolution that could contribute to the success of our species. And um, the other thing is that humans are also very adaptable to diets. So when people say there's no one diet for humans, that is true. And perhaps another reason humans are so successful is that we are able to eat a wide variety of foods. But I still think that most of those foods were still plant foods. People weren't just eating, you know, leaves off a tree, but they're also eating fruits. They were eating tubers, which are the roots of plants and can take the shape of potatoes, berries, all these other things, nuts. And then during human evolution, they may have also gotten meat and fish but it doesn't mean that we have to eat meat and fish to be healthy. When you look at scientific studies, uh, you find a lot of evidence that meat causes problems, health problems that, I, that, that you mentioned, like diabetes, high blood pressure, dementia, and then heart disease. And the list just goes on and on. And uh, so when you think about for the bulk of human evolution, our ancestors were eating primary plant-based diets. So the way I kind of think of it, if an alien came down to earth and found a human back then, and then so happened to find a manual, like how to feed this human, like the manual would say, give a plant-based diet. Unfortunately, we know what rabbits and horses eat, we know what cats eat and dogs eat, but the question for what humans should be eating is very difficult because culture has changed the diets for so many human populations, which could be an advantage in the evolutionary spectrum because so many different populations have different diets, but over time it can also make it confusing as to what is ideal human diet. But when you take epidemiologic evidence, medical studies that have been done, and then evolutionary history, uh, the answer is pretty clear, people should be on a plant-based diet. And the proof is in the pudding. When people go on a whole foods plant-based diet, they reverse their diabetes, they reverse their high blood pressure, they lose weight, cholesterol improves, they have lower risk of cancer. Uh, heart disease in the lifestyle heart trial was reversed in that trial, which is why cardiologists, and among other studies, why cardiologists embrace this. And um, the benefits are, are multiple. You're not doing this diet just for one disease. This diet has uh, effects for pretty much every disease out there. And that's what you would expect if you were eating a truly natural diet. The so-called seed of change that happened with me years ago, maybe planted by a book or someone else who believes uh, in a different set of evidence or is selective, or, or maybe that evidence isn't as solid as other pieces of evidence. And they may come to the conclusion that low-carb diets or this diet or that diet might be better for you and people get on these bandwagons and trains. And then the latest one, as, as I mentioned earlier, is the keto diet, which I think has more dangers to it than people think. And I wrote about it in my Kevin MD article that the benefit may be overstated for both diabetes and weight loss. Some people do very well on it, and that's because they adhere to the diet very well. And those people will see results off the diet uh, but the problem with being ketosis, which involves getting so few carbs in your diet that you're dependent upon fat to produce ketones, and that's how you get your energy. They may not be in that state where it's the, ketone, uh, the keto diet asks of their followers. And the other issue is that the side effects of the keto diet, which when was studied in childhood populations, a lot of children had this litany of side effects, which include pancreatitis, mineral deficiencies, arrhythmias, and even death, which is all very scary. And then uh, there's also other side effects, which were more common, but less severe, like kidney stones, but kidney stones can also be severe. Kidney stones! And then, uh, well, we know that increasing the proportion of animal foods in your diet causes higher blood pressure, and then it can also cause other problems, especially if you're eating fatty foods, which the keto diet asks you to do. A lot of saturated fat in our diet comes from uh, animal foods, which is also a problem. But then uh, people say, well, you should try and eat 
lean meats, but then lean meats also are problematic because they don't have fiber, which is a critical issue as many people in America don't get enough fiber and the meats themselves carry their own hosts of other problems and are associated with other diseases. Uh, they increase the risk of heart disease and diabetes and things like that, even though they're, they're still lean meats or, or just meat in general. It's really hard to get good evidence on that. So the healthiest thing a person can do for the short term and the long term is just to not follow a fad diet, but adopt a whole dietary plate and lifestyle that is as healthy that includes whole food plant-based items. Right. One other question that I have, and it's talked about in conjunction with the keto diet and probably also part of what the keto diet entails is this idea of fasting or intermittent fasting. What are your thoughts on that and the place of fasting in general as a part of a healthy lifestyle, if it has a place? Yeah, so fasting and intermittent fasting, I don't think they have to be associated with keto diet. You can do that with pretty much any diet. When you look at uh, evolution, likely, and it's hard to say for sure, but uh, but we certainly know that during evolution, food would have been unreliable. We wouldn't have had a reliable source of food that we have now from you can go to a supermarket or go to the store or a restaurant and get food. Uh, food would have been unreliable. There weren't as many ways to preserve it. Acquiring it was dependent upon seasonal variations, temperature, your ability to gather food, luck, and other things. So fasting during human evolution likely happened. People experienced, so to speak, feast or famine. And during times of famine, humans were dependent upon their fat reserves, glycogen stores, things like that to get them through these periods of not having a substantial uh, calories. So when people ask about it today, I say that uh, it likely happened and you doing it now is, is recreating that. Is it healthy? It probably is healthy in regards to just limiting calories. People eat way too many calories per day. If you look at uh, how many calories we were eating in the 1970s and how many calories we're eating now. Um, the estimates vary, but we're eating anywhere between 200 and 400 calories more per day. And on an average, that adds up. And if you think about how many extra calories are in a pound of extra body weight, it's 3,500 uh, more or less. So after about 10 days, you, you've added a pound. Wow. So it's easy to see how people can become overweight and obese and have a desire for these dietary fad diets and things like that. So I think fasting is useful in that it helps people just reduce their calorie intake over like a week or month's time instead of eating 14,000 calories a week if you're fasting you know for one of those days you may cut it down to 12,000 and that may keep you at a desirable weight which is which is useful so until we have evidence that it's dangerous for whatever reason I think it's a reasonable option for some people yeah super interesting and you know I think one of the reasons that kind of attracted me to your article which I saw on Kevin MD is that there's so much information being put out there in various forms of media just touting the ketogenic diet, you know, the newest craze in the diet world as like the best thing since sliced bread. Well, I guess that association doesn't work yeah. with the keto diet. Uh, I guess the best yeah, thing yeah. is sliced meat. <laughs> they would hate you for it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, uh, sliced deli right, meat. Right. So, you know, obviously yours, you know, took a much more evidence-based approach and was kind of more a cautionary tale based on evidence. What has been the response of your article, maybe in particular, any negative responses to it? Yeah, that's so you're talking about the, the keto diet article on uh, yeah. MD. Yeah, so so that that one has elicited strong responses from people who generally are the plant-based community and then also strong negative responses from uh, the people who are the low-carb community. The positive responses have been good. We've been finding my article posted in various places, which is always uh, fulfilling to see that people, one, have read it, and two, agree with what you've said. Which is both are very fulfilling and rewarding as a physician and a writer. And seeing the article shared and retweeted really makes my day because uh, I, I, I certainly believe in the message and I don't want people to be harmed by this diet. And uh, so the plant based community, people who are physicians, scientists uh, alike, see that the article is evidence based. I try and link sources to it where I can. And I try and write it in a way that is fairly balanced and conveys uh, the facts as opposed to any emotion. And um, that has been a positive response. Negative response. Uh, obviously has been from people who have already adopted the keto diet, followers of the keto diet, uh, followers of low-carb low diets in general, which 
include Paleo South Beach, uh, Atkins, various other diets. And uh, they argue that there's not enough evidence to say that the diet is not helpful or is dangerous. But my article, by linking my evidence, I show that the benefit isn't there after one year for people with diabetes and then weight loss, the weight effect in a meta-analysis was marginal. It was, if I remember correctly, about a pound extra for people doing the keto diet after a year, huh? which is trivial compared to, to doing any other diets. Why do the keto diet for weight loss or diabetes if you're only going to lose an extra one pound, which is which is measly, yeah. or not have any benefit with diabetes, which is if it's not giving you any benefit, why do it? And then take on the risk of the keto diet, which is pretty unnatural because one, no living population has done this for a long period of time. People say, oh, what about the Inuit or uh, circumpolar people in the Arctic and Antarctic? Well, there aren't that many populations in the Antarctic, so it would be primarily the Arctic. But what about them? Well, they actually have this genetic mutation to avoid ketosis. So the plot even thickens. Why do they have this genetic mutation to avoid ketosis? We don't fully know, but one the logical thing from that is that ketosis likely was fatal in some way or extremely dangerous, affected reproduction, and that's why there is this mutation for it. And actually, when you look at there's a study that I found uh, recently showing that uh, there's a higher incidence of birth defects of people with low-carb diets, so that may be a reason why the Inuit have this mutation. Um, and then I cite the other evidence about kidney stones and the mineral deficiencies and pancreatitis. I uh, linked those articles associated with the keto diet from when it was used in kids for epilepsy. This was way back before we had a modern anti-antieleptic drugs. So I argue that uh, the risk-benefit ratio uh, is not favorable to following a keto diet. People shouldn't mortgage, you know, losing weight or treating their diabetes to gain another side effect. You don't want to trade one disease process for another. By doing this, uh, so why not just adopt a diet that treats all of these things and you don't have to run into the problem of developing pancreatitis or arrhythmia or, you know, dying when you can just eat a whole foods plant-based diet. And so many populations depend on carbs in their diet naturally that it's almost heresy that people think that uh, carbs are bad. The only way carbs are bad is if they're refined. You're getting them through high fructose corn syrup or right. sugar or white bread or white rice. That's when you run into danger. And when you look at Indians ourselves, which is a whole other interest of mine, mm -hmm. that's what's happening in India now. And that's why all the diseases that we've had in America are now happening in India, but uh, that may be for another podcast or another yeah. time. Yeah, no, that, that's fascinating, man. I guess a few like rapid fire questions here. I want to be mindful of your time and start to wrap this up. But what does like your diet and exercise regimen look like specifically in like a given day or a given week, especially with all the things you do being a full-time physician and all the writing that you're doing? Like, how do you kind of fit all of this in? What does that look like for you? Yeah, so for me, I try and get eight hours of sleep. Sleep is very important. Certainly don't smoke, which is a huge modified risk factor for long-term diseases. And then I try and exercise every day if I can on, on the weekdays, try and get at least five days. And I try and go on the weekends if, if I can as well. But sometimes the weekends are hard if I'm out and doing things. Um, but uh, I do try and get at least five days of going to the gym and running on a treadmill at least for 30 minutes and breaking into the sweat and getting my heart rate up, which is helpful from a cardiopulmonary standpoint and my physical fitness and also burns off calories too, which is important. And uh, I try and do weightlifting, but uh, that is probably where I don't always do consistently for time reasons. And then uh, in terms of diet, I try and eat a, a salad a day, which is what I tell my patients too. Eating a salad a day for one of your meals kind of eliminates the hassle of thinking about what I need to eat or how do I make this. Salads are pretty quick and easy to get uh, or make on your own or get from anywhere. You can get uh, a nice salad, even from Subway, I hate to say it, but uh, the salad that they make there is pretty quick, reasonably priced, and you can uh, get it from almost anywhere in America. You have to watch out for a dressing though. Those, uh, those dressings are not always the healthiest so, as with any right. salad. And then I try and eat uh, like a stir fry or something vegetable based at home or I make a sandwich uh, for dinner in the mornings. I'm generally eating fruits. Uh, people don't eat enough fruits and people need to find a way to incorporate fruits in their diet. They originally were the evolutionary fast food. They were hanging off trees and people would grab them on the go and eat them. So uh, I try and buy the pack of mandarins or bananas or get some berries and I grab a few or package them up and take them with me as I'm walking to work or eat them uh, in the mornings while I'm at work. But that's generally what my uh, lifestyle looks like. That's great. I think that there's a lot of actionable things 
things in there. I mean, there's obviously so much bad information and misinformation that we kind of touched on, but what resources would you consider good information for people who would like to dive deeper on some of these topics that we've covered? You know, other than your blog, Afternoon Rounds, what are some other uh, resources for people? Yeah, yeah, I probably should update that, include um, a list of my resources. I, I, I get this question periodically. Some uh, A great place and a great website is uh, nutritionfacts.org. I, I've been referencing patients and professionals alike to go to this website. It's run by Michael Greger, who wrote the widely popular book, How Not to Die, and then years ago wrote Carbophobia, which is also one of my favorite books. But he now runs and maintains this website and it has a lot of uh, evidence-based information. He shows you the journals in his videos. You can type in a question. He's thoroughly thought about these questions for a, a long period of time, perhaps years before you have even thought about it or anyone else out there has thought about this question. But he posts these videos because he has these questions and he knows other people are having the same questions. Is milk good for me? Is it really true? Really good for you know building strong bones like those commercials from right. the 90s said books for babies yeah babies oh yeah well i happen to know that milk helps build strong bones so drink up and he does a deep dive and he shows you where he's getting the evidence he highlights the lines and he provides the references in his web page and you can click on it and it takes you to the original page so it takes you takes out a lot of this cross-checking labor for you and you can do it pretty quickly so i, I really like that other great places to go are uh, neil barnard's website pcrm.org which has a lot of great information especially if you're interested in transitioning to uh, a plant-based diet and uh, Forks Over Knives, which is also a great website, which has uh, articles from uh, physicians like myself and uh, recipes for people and uh, a lot of other useful information. So those are all great places to go. And um, like with many things, I think it's important for people to look into this themselves and look and see, is there a citation next to this? Or where's the evidence behind this? Or think about this as critically as one is able to. I realize not everyone's a physician or a scientist or has as much uh, education or training, but as with anything, a healthy level of skepticism is good because if you are able to validate that and cross-check it for yourself, you might feel more comfortable believing it, which these websites generally do a good job of providing that transparency. Yeah, that's awesome. Just one final question or two, more about your writing career and kind of how how you started the process of, you know, like setting up a blog and then how some of these opportunities came up later as far as Kevin MD and Huffington Post and Thrive Global, Forks Over Knives, like you mentioned. How would you describe the process for aspiring um, physician writers and how do you kind of fit that into your daily and weekly schedule? Yeah, I find uh, writing fairly cathartic. It releases a lot of thoughts and emotions as we put my thoughts on paper. So allows me to organize my thoughts and then also as a form of stress relief and then also in many of my posts as a form of education and advocacy outside of the workplace and some of the things that I've written have been more impactful than me seeing patients you know one patient every 20 minutes or 30 minutes uh, seeing a patient just one article can reach so many people and be retweeted and reposted and have a huge impact but for people who want to write I say and it's not just writing it it's whatever you want to, to do be it uh, photography or whatever else uh, you just keep doing whatever is fulfilling or interesting to you so for me I just knew that if I write and I just was persistent and I could perhaps find a home so to speak for each article and then over time people would then ask me for to write an article for them which was nice but I started out probably with Kevin MD as so many physicians do and then I was invited to write for Huffington Post for a while and now I, I write for other places but there are ways to get your message out there a lot of people have taken to their own blogs to write things which can also lower the need for what you need to write or you're not forced to write on a specific topic or format it in a certain way but you can also contribute it to scientific journals too many journals accept uh, opinions and editorials and commentaries uh, if they're well thought out and researched so there are ways for physicians to write and get their message across that's phenomenal and you know for things like the Huffington Post did they you know come across your writing in other places and that's how you were kind of invited to contribute so or, you know, how did that relationship develop? Uh, yeah, with Huffington Post, another contributor saw my writing and then invited me to it uh, one at the time when Huffington Post had a contributor platform. Since then, Huffington Post has scaled back their contributor options, but that's how it was. And generally, that's that's how many writing opportunities go. If someone likes your writing and that person happens to be an editor or another writer, they'll say, hey, this person should contribute to our publication because he's writing in the same way. 
wavelength and may have similar messages to what we're saying in our publication. That's generally how it goes. And like for many things, you have, you know, if you're an artist and you make a nice song and someone else hears it and happens to be the right person, then, you know, you find yourself uh, contributing or, or doing that for uh, another person. So it in itself, it was, it's, a, it's, it's almost a, a meme in that it catches attention and it's repeated and so forth. All right. Any aspirations for you as far as uh, the writing goes? I heard that uh, there may be a book in the works, maybe surrounding some of these things that we've been talking about. Is that true? Yeah, that, that's, that is definitely true. It's been a goal, like a, a life goal. You know, I, I would not be able to say I've achieved everything I wanted to do in my life until I get this uh, book finished, which has been a multi-year project. It started out with assembling all the evidence that I had collected on why the paleo diet was wrong, but has since uh, transformed into just why plant-based diets are good and meat-based diets are bad. But the thing is that as you take longer to write a book, your message may fall into the background as society evolves into different uh, focuses or different uh, themes or diets. So paleo diet was a rage maybe five years ago or 10 years ago, and now it's a keto diet. So it's more reason that I need to be more focused on this and get this out which is no easy undertaking but um, hopefully at some point in the undefined future that this will be a reality that's phenomenal man definitely keep us posted there's so much good stuff in here i think uh, our listeners are really gonna appreciate all of your advice and wisdom and uh, all those things yeah! where can people find you You're, you mostly spend your time on twitter yeah you can find me on twitter at sjoshimd uh, you can also uh, use that handle to find me on facebook my blog is afternoonrounds.com which also has my twitter feed there but a lot of my postings generally are on the, another page on my blog which takes you to the publisher's website be it huffington post or forbes from Ives or Kevin MD and you can see my latest articles there but yeah those are the the main ways to find me this is great man thank you so much this was uh, a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to a round two sometime yeah yeah no this has been great for me as well thank you for inviting me yeah your other podcasts have been great I really enjoyed this and I'm, yeah I'm looking forward to, to round two all right brother take bye. care bye <laughs>